Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Miracle Soup with your host, Christoph Heinen, broadcasting to you directly from the mystical foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California. Today's guest is someone I am genuinely so excited to share with y'all. His name is Paul Levy. He is an author, speaker, uh, group workshop leader. Um, I'm going to call him a healer, um, sort of wizard, uh, Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, and just all around uh, and teacher of, of of good things, teacher of the Dharma, I would say. Um, his books include the one that I have enjoyed tremendously called Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. Um, and he has also just written a new book called Quantum Revelation, A Radical Synthesis of Science and Spirituality. Both books are available on Amazon or his website, Awaken awakenedinthedream.com. And I'll refer to that in the show notes. Um, I met Paul. First interaction was through the podcast Boot at the Gas Pump. And uh, it was a really synchronistic experience to hear his message on that podcast because it helped me so much with the kinds of things that I'm going through right now in my life, which I won't get into. That's a little bit personal right now. But um, Paul has no problem sharing his story and sort of bearing all. So um, I found that tremendously helpful. Uh, I went on to order his book, um, completely devour it, underline like every other sentence in the thing. It just really took me in. Uh, and then I reached out to Paul for a private session, which was enormously helpful. So for any of you who feel like you might be overwhelmed with um, a shadow attack or some shadow work or just some dark stuff going on in your life, Paul is highly skilled at helping uh, one to navigate through those murky waters. Um, a little, little warning, this podcast episode is not necessarily for the faint at heart. Um, it, it, it really sort of um, sounds a lot, in a lot of ways, like a Stephen King novel. Um, it definitely has a macabre um, feel to it, although I find that it's very fascinating and liberating to um, to really get that story and that perspective. Because I think a lot of the times people don't really like uh, the horror genre so much. I Most people I talk to when I say I'm going to see a horror movie, they say, oh, not me, not me, I'm not going to do that. And um, Personally, I think it's really help, healthy to at least look at, at that aspect of life and to overcome those fears and to really like examine the darkness and the shadow in life. I, I think it's, um, and Paul gets into this, and as you'll see, it, it really, there's a lot of um, energy, a lot of power, a lot of creative potential that's hidden inside of our integrating of the shadow and the dark aspects and the not so pleasant parts of what it is to be a human being. Um, so without further ado, here we go. Um, my recording equipment is still getting tweaked. I'm still working on, you know, how to get the sound just right. So bear with me in the beginning. It's a little scratchy, but it, it does even out. And, and I think you'll really enjoy this, this, uh, this interview with Paul Levy. Um, and I'll see you on the other side. Aloha.
Okay. Well, thanks again so much for um, coming on my show. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, oh, I'm really happy to be invited. So thank you. Yeah, I know that you've been on like some really big podcasts and some really like big, well-known shows. So I was really, really honored that that you that you chose to talk to me today. Um, I guess so. So my audience, most people, besides the people I've talked to about 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 um, you and the session that we had, which was so helpful, by the way, um, no one really knows anything about even what Watiko is and how you came into your path. And if you haven't talked about it too much, and if you're not too bored with it, if you wouldn't mind just starting there, because it, it, it's such a fascinating story, and I'd love to, I'd love to start yeah, there. Sure. No, I, I, I really appreciate that, and I'm not bored by talking about it at all. I can talk about it endlessly. And how I, how I came to it, you know, I just was, was a normal kid growing up, and thinking I had a normal family. But then I began to notice this real dark energy coming through my father, and I'm the only child. And at a certain point, I became the recipient, you know, of him just acting out his unhealed abuse, which we all do, whether it's with our partners or our kids. Um, but it was so intense, the, the, this, this darkness that came through my father, in a way, he was just the instrument for some sort of, you know, more archetypal sort of whatever this darker force to come through that it created incredible suffering for me. Like I went from being an incredibly highly functioning, um, you know, person to all of a sudden I was so traumatized and, and just having this wound from what my father acted out on me that I couldn't live my life. And we're talking, I was in my, my early to mid twenties. I mean, it, it, stopped me from being able to live my life so fully that it was, you know, whereas other people might have an option to postpone dealing with their stuff and all that. For me, there wasn't a choice. And I went inwards really deeply and I just began to, to you know, to pay attention to my own mind because um, that was the only thing that in any way was helping to alleviate the suffering. And then, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I had this, this, this spiritual awakening. Um, but I wasn't in a container. I wasn't in an ashram or a monastery. I was a free agent out in the world and I was so excited at what I was realizing. Um, and what I was realizing was that, oh my God, we're having a, this, this is a, a, this is like this, this, this dream, a collective dream that we're all dreaming up. And in my enthusiasm and excitement, I got myself in trouble within the first day. I got myself hospitalized and diagnosed and medicated. And the whole while I, you know, I mean, it, it couldn't have been more clear to me that I was having a spiritual awakening. So to, to make a long story short, during that next almost two years, my awakening deepened and continued, but I also got myself, I had a propensity to get myself thrown in hospitals. So maybe four or five other times I got thrown in hospitals, diagnosed, medicated, and it, it was a nightmare that would, that, that almost killed me. Um, but then, so what happened when I got out of the last hospital in 1982, it was, you know, everybody, my entire world was reflecting back, was ref, um, they were reflecting back to me that I had this newly discovered chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I should point out that now the same psychiatrist who wrote the DSM-3, which had just come out the year before, which had announced the discovery of the chemical imbalance, the same psychiatrists have since come out and said, oh, by the way, that's bogus. There's no such thing. It was just made up by the pharmaceutical companies to sell more drugs, to make more money. 
Um, and so, so but, the whole thing about chemical imbalance, they've come out and said that that's actually not a true. Yeah, thing. yeah. In in my personal memoir, I actually quote the actual psychiatrist. Wow. I'm quoting the authors of the DSM three, who years later came out and confessed that that was made up. Oh my God! Because that's still such a. Yeah, it's still such a meme. It's still yeah. people talk about the chemical imbalance like it's a real thing because it really got imprinted into our psyche as if it was something that actually existed. Where so, and the thing that saved me was that I I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was having a spiritual awakening. That was made really clear to me. And so that's what saved me. So not for one second did I buy into the diagnosis and I got myself off of the medication as soon as I could and I extricated myself from psychiatry. But then I began to, to see something. I began to to recognize that the same deeper pattern that you know was playing out with reference to my father, where whenever I was pointing out the darkness in, that was coming through my father, the field that, that was surrounding him and you know just the family system, the non-local field, would always configure to protect the abuser, to protect my father. And I noticed the same non-local field whenever I was trying to shed light on the madness or the abuse of psychiatry. Similarly, it was as if the field would shapeshift and configure itself to protect the darkness. Mm -hmm. And so that was really interesting to me because then I began to realize, wow, there is something, you know, almost like a higher dimensional energy, you know, or one could say in the non-local field that was actually protecting the abuser, protecting the darkness. But at the same time, it was revealing the darkness. It was showing itself, you know, to me. So instead of just being completely killed by it, I was really tracking it and drawing maps and connecting the dots in a way that I began to, to have the realization there is this it's almost like an evil spirit you know that exists in the in the field in in the cosmos well or one could say in the non-local field or in our psyches deep within us that to the extent that we don't see it it actually operates unwittingly not only by configuring events in the world but through our blind spots through our unconscious in such a way that it kind of will flavor our perceptions such that that darkness renders itself invisible where we can't see it and um and we unwittingly become an instrument through which that darkness acts itself out to the extent that we don't see it so that was really interesting to me and what i'm describing that's watiko watiko is a psychospiritual disease of the soul it's the root of all of the evil that we play out both in our own minds, towards ourselves with our, whether it's self-abuse or addictions, but we play out in relationships and in intimate relationships. We play out, you know, in collective groups or, you know, in the greater body politic of the world. And I was realizing, oh my God, this Watiko idea, that, that's this, this Native American indigenous idea actually is the name or creates context for the deeper darkness that's playing out through our species in the greater body politic that's actually destroying us. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we don't see it, because if you remember, it operates through, you know, through our blind spots, then our not seeing it enlists us to be unwittingly an agent, an unwitting agent of the very disease. And so, how I began to see this was through, you know, the what played out 
through my father, how the family system protected him through psychiatry. And I began to see, oh my God, it's like iterations of a fractal that are, that are you know, sort of like nested within each other, but it's the same fractal, just, just sort of propagating itself in, in these different dimensions of our being. And so, and, and, and the thing is with Watiko, it's such a profound idea because if I could just say a few more words about it, it's an inner dis-ease of the soul that actually expresses itself through somehow extending itself out into the world and synchronistically expressing itself via outer events. So that's very interesting because what I'm saying, it's an inner condition inside of us that actually expresses itself through the outer forms of this world. That's to say that one way of seeing Watiko is when you have the recognition that what's playing out in the world is synchronistically reflecting what is going on inside of our mind. And that, by the way, is just like a dream, okay? And the, this other thing about Watiko, so it's this form of, of being blind, works through the blind spots, but it's a particular type of, of blindness that actually believes that it's actually sighted. And not only is it believing that it's sighted, it believes that it sees more clearly than people who actually are seeing. And so what it does, it actually, it operates through the projective tendencies of the mind, because we're always projecting. I mean, if you think about what, what, if you have like a dream, a dream is a projection of the mind. Well, so is our, our waking dream. So Watiko operates through the projective tendencies of, the, of our mind in such a way that we entrance ourselves. So we actually hypnotize ourselves such that we then put our attention outside of ourselves, thinking the problem exists out there. And all the while, the origin of that process is within us. So as long as we're like, you know, thinking and putting our awareness and our attention outside on the on the seeming objects of the world or and the world as if it's objective separate from us we then have ensured that we're that we're never going to see the actual source of the problem which is inside of us which is and that's what tico that's how watiko operates you know it actually hypnotizes ourselves we it entrances ourselves so we have this creative like this genius for how we conjure up and create reality that will create our experience of reality. And what Watiko does, it subverts our genius in such a way that it turns it against ourselves so that we actually kill ourselves. And that's what's happening both individually and collectively as a species. It, it, it really, it, all of it sounds just like the absolute best horror movie novel anyone could come up with. I mean, it beats them all. It beats all Stephen King stuff. Yeah, 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 no, totally. I immediately think of Stephen King, but th this would be like beyond Stephen King, definitely. Yeah, totally beyond. And, and the thing about, okay, so my mom turned me on to Stephen King when I was really young, and she's kind of a horror fanatic or fan, and so I've always just been really fascinated with horror movies and novels and that kind of thing. And one of the things I noticed with Stephen King's novels is that he has these characters repeatedly who they're evil because they feed on the fear of the other characters. They literally gain their strength from the fear and the suffering that they create. And that's just like what that's just like what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Well the thing about Watiko, it feeds off of fear and when there is like polarization. So there's mm -hmm. such intense polarization in our world. 
And, and, you know, and of course, so we, instead of like, you know, think about individually or as a collective to the extent that we're not owning our own darkness, you know, and I go into this in my book in great detail, what we do is we, we project out our own shadow, our own darkness, and we become entranced that the darkness is out there and then we try to destroy it. And by doing that, we have become possessed by the darkness we're trying to destroy. And, you know, and it's a feedback loop that, you know, we just entrance ourselves but the idea is, is that as long as we're seeing the person holding our shadow as other, as separate from us, because if you remember, you know, what Tico feeds off of fear, off of polarization and off of thinking that people exist as others, you know, then then we're under the spell of what And that's in totally in, in distinction to when we actually if this is a dream and we wake up. Well, what do we wake up to? We wake up that we're not separate, that we're interconnected and interdependent, that we depend on each other for our survival. That's to cut through the separate self. And that's one of the ways of really, you know, to heal Watiko. So then if you even do have that awakening through your experience of Watiko or whatever, you have this awakening that we're in a dream and we're dreaming all this and we're all and it's all just one one consciousness, essentially, then how do you still deal with the wrong that's happening? Because even when, when you awaken, it's not like all of a sudden there's no more wars on the planet or people don't keep trying to harm you. So how does that fit in in, in like a down-to-earth practical sense where I wake up from the dream, oh my gosh, we're all one, but somebody is still trying to do me wrong? Right, right, sure. No, that that's that's a really good question. And that's where, you know, so I, I have this, this new book um, on quantum physics and I point out that quantum physics, and, and you'll see how this is going to tie back to answer your question, because it, it's a great question. Um, I, I point out that quantum physics is actually the healing for Watiko. It's the medicine for Watiko. And in the essence, what quantum physics discovered, you know, in the early 20th century was that the, this universe that classical physics was trying to understand which classical physics thought of as objectively existing, that this was an objective world and we were separate and we were just passively trying to understand what is the nature of this objective world. Quantum physics basically empirically proved, you know, beyond the, the slightest shred of a doubt, that there is no objective world, that the world that, that pre-quantum physics was trying to understand didn't even exist, that there's nothing objective, that the act of observing actually influences the very universe that we observe. And so that's really interesting because then to go back to your question, when you actually have the recognition that this is a dream, that this is this collectively shared dream that we're all dreaming it up into materialization moment by moment, that's to see through the illusion that this universe exists objectively. Okay. So you'll have that realization, but there's still going to be evil playing out and all this war and all this stuff. But instead of then seeing it as separate from you and then reacting to the seeming darkness as if it's separate from you, and by reacting to that evil as if it's separate from you, you're unwittingly like feeding it. Mm. Um, you actually have the recognition that the evil that you're seeing out there is reflecting your own evil and potential. We all have that, you know, and so that can actually help us to get in touch with our own darkness and to own it and to integrate it as much as we can. But then instead of reacting to the world as if it's objective and separate and other than ourselves, which is feeding Watiko, 
we then actually gain possession of ourselves and become more in control of ourselves. And then we actually become this agent who's embodying, you know, because what we discover when we discover, you know, who we are is like that our nature is actually is having to do with compassion and love and wisdom. And by embodying that and not reacting and not becoming conditioned by what's happening in the outside world, we are like actually embodying in our in our incarnation, you know, just as a human being. It's not like we become like, yeah, we're like these divine beings, but we're just also these ordinary people, you know, but by but by actually seeing the dreamlike nature, we're gonna be just in a natural way, you know, expressing and embodying what it is to be an awake human being to the best of our ability. And that actually energetically non-locally has an effect on the entire field and on whoever we're interacting with because it's contagious in the same way that Watiko is contagious. If, if somebody's afflicted with Watiko, you hang out with them enough, that same energy is going to start going into you. And if you're not careful, you'll start actually becoming an unwitting instrument for channeling Watiko in the same way when you hang out with somebody who's really embodying their true nature of compassion and love that becomes contagious. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh, wow, I'm actually more in touch with those positive qualities in myself. Yeah, wow. And, and then I guess some of the non-shadow aspects of dealing with these situations can come through like healthy boundaries and clear communication instead of like reacting and blaming and then trying to hurt somebody for hurting you back which is really the crux of it, right? Yeah, but it's a way, because I, I have a whole community that's formed, you know, you know, just with my work. And um, one of the key things of the community is the way we express ourselves in that there's a radical difference between if, if you and I are interacting and if I tell you, oh, you're doing this, that's very different than if I say, oh, my experience is that you're doing this. Because... That's owning, going, look, I'm having a hallucination. My hallucination is that you're doing this. I could be projecting pink elephants and you're not really doing that. Or you, or I might be picking up your blind spot and unconscious and maybe I'm, I'm offering you a gift. But the point is, I'm not telling you anything really about what you're doing. I'm telling you what my experience is. And then it's up to you to what are you going to do with that? You know, and, and when people actually you know, really integrate that way of communicating where we're taking responsibility for our experience, then it frees everyone else up to do the same. And then we can actually hopefully discern, oh, what part of that is information for me? And what part of that, oh, Paul's just projecting his own stuff. That's a huge point, man. I just, right when you said that, I just think how, just what a higher form of communication that is. It, no. To own it and say this, hey, my experience is that this is happening versus um, no. you're doing this to me and you're wrong and I'm going to get you back for it. Totally. Oh, totally. That, so you guys use like nonviolent communication? Yeah, I mean, we're very familiar. There are a lot of people in the groups who've studied nonviolent communication, but it, it, it's this is this is different than nonviolent communication. You know, um, yeah. I mean, it just really has to do with that. Like, um, you know, say if you're doing something. I'm not in a position to know what you're objectively doing because if there were 10 people in the circle, they might all see what you're doing different. Mm. And it's not a question of who's right or who's wrong, but I am in a position to know what I'm hallucinating you're doing, you mm. know? 
And then, you know, then I can express it from that point of view. And that just opens up because then if I express it that way, you're not going to feel objectified. You're not going to feel blamed. You're not going to have to feel immediately defensive, like you're being accused. And, you know, and then it's, it's information for you. Yeah. You know? well, thanks for that. Um, yep. sw switching gears a little bit. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of A Course of Miracles. I've been studying it for years and it's just, man, that, that text just touches my heart and has, has touched me in such a deep way. And it sounds like the, the words they use is ego. And is, is that the same thing as Watiko? Like Watiko sounds like it's just like an extreme form of like potentized ego. Like what ego does it the worst? Basically? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because I've been a student of the course for, for a long time, for yeah. many years. And, um, you know, at first I was surprised where a lot of when I first published my book on Watiko, a lot of students from the Course in Miracles would write me going, oh, my God, you're like saying exactly what the course is saying in, in, in these different words. And I think that's really true, because before I actually um, discovered Watiko as a word, I was I had written a book about it a number of years ago where I was calling, um, you know, what Watiko is malignant egophrenia or ME disease. Mm me disease it's a misidentification of who we think we are and that's what the course in miracles is referring to by the term ego so in that point of view they're very very equivalent and you know and but, but like so that's the root of watiko that we then we imagine we're this limited egoic you know identity which is this this reference point in space and time and then we invest all of our energy in defending that and protecting that when that limited identity, if you want to call it that ego, it doesn't even exist, at least in the way we've been imagining it does. Mm. So it's because of that, that that's why I called it malignant egophrenia, you know, and me disease, me disease. And, um, and if I could just say something about, because what I'm pointing out is when we understand what Tico um, and how it operates through the world and through our minds, it can really help us to break out of our self-created spell because we have this unbelievable creative power every moment in which we're creating our experience of ourselves and we're creating our experience of the world and how that works because it's so mind-blowing, it's so psychedelic. <laughs> Way to understand it, imagine you're in a dream. Imagine you're in a dream at night and you're holding a viewpoint in a dream and what is the dream but your own psyche? Right. I mean, that's obvious. So if you're holding a viewpoint, the dream has no choice but to instantaneously shape shift and reflect back your viewpoint, because the dream is nothing other than your own mind, just externalized. Right. And so if you change your viewpoint in the dream, the whole dream shape shifts and reflects back your change in viewpoint. But as soon as it does that, as soon as you have confirmation from the dream of the correctness of your viewpoint, you become even more fixed in your view in your viewpoint, because now you have evidence. That your, that your viewpoint is correct. So you become more fixed in your viewpoint, which means you become more entrenched in it. So you see it more that way. And, you know, I'm talking in a night dream. And then the night dream has no choice but to reflect back and offer you all the proof and evidence to confirm your viewpoint in a feedback loop whose origin is your own mind. Now, I'm talking about that's in a dream. I'm then making the leap and saying that's what's happening in the waking dream, that we are the we have this this genius for creating our experience of reality. And when we hold a viewpoint, we then, you know, see the world 
in such a way that the world will then offer us all the evidence confirming our viewpoint, just like I described in the night dream. And we've then entranced ourselves by our own creative genius for evoking reality. And we've, we've like by entrancing ourselves, we've put ourselves under a spell. Now the thing about Watiko, it's the source of the greatest evil, but it's also it, in, encoded within Watiko is its own medicine. It, it has this incredible blessing. If Watiko didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It's actually a catalyst helping us to wake up and helping us to evolve. So the thing about Watiko, it's a quantum phenomena in that it's in a super, you know, superposed in Watiko is the greatest poison and evil. But if we don't recognize what its nature is, it'll manifest just as the evil, but also superposed within it, hidden, encoded within Watiko is this incredible blessing to help us to wake up and how it manifests. It depends on nothing other than if we recognize what it's showing us. Man. You know, um, after our last session, I was sitting with a lot of what we talked about. And one of the, the stories that came up was the story about of Shiva. Um, I think it was in the Puranas where the gods and the, demi, and the demons are, are churning the ocean and they're having this big battle and this horrible poison is created. And Shiva is the one who appears and he takes the poison in. He drinks it in. It turns his throat blue, but he basically saves the entire universe by neutralizing that poison, taking it into himself. And Shiva is... I mean, to me, it's the representation of, of just awareness, of unconditional awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, Away from the dream. Yeah, they have a similar thing in um, Tibetan Buddhism. They'll say, you know, with poison, like somebody who's maybe more like a beginning practitioner will just, oh, we need to keep our distance from poison, not have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. Then maybe another more advanced practitioner might be, oh, we can make the antidote to poison, you know? But then, like, you know, if you have this really advanced practitioner, they actually can eat the poison and the poison, just like a peacock becomes when it eats poison, its colors become brighter in its tail. The same thing, when you're really an advanced practitioner, you can take in the poison and it, it deepens your, your insight and your, your understanding. The point being is that at those moments, because all of that, that's fine and dandy, but how does that have to do with, you know, our moment to moment, day to day, you know, existence? The point is that at those moments when we're subjectively experiencing as if we're having the mo being attacked by Watiko, by evil, that's also the moment that evil's underbelly is most exposed. And, but you know, it's so seductive to just feel under attack and either identify with how, oh, I'm, I'm being attacked, I'm so wounded, I'm traumatized, this, or we you know, split or like disassociate but the idea of keeping your awareness and actually seeing, oh wow, this manifestation of evil right now in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll say its nature is emptiness. It has no intrinsic independent existence separate from your own mind. And But the Watiko doesn't want you to see that. It doesn't want you to see its nature in the same way that in fairy tales, when, you, if you, if, when there's a demon, if you find the name of the demon, it takes away its power because then you see it. And it takes away its autonomy and its its omnipotence. In the same way, what Watiko it operates through the blindness. It, it operates through our unawareness. It doesn't want us to see how it operates through the non-local field and through our own minds. Because when we see it, we take away its power. It becomes unemployed, and we become empowered. And that's its worst nightmare. I, I think with that, with that 
reminds me of seeing the underbelly is is just when I'm really in it and I'm just feeling so attacked or so terrible and overwhelmed by this evil, horrible feeling. When I can get to a place, I'm reminded of Byron Katie. You know, she went through some intense suffering. And then all of a sudden, she just kind of had this flash where she realized, like, it was all lies. All of the suffering is created by a lie that she's believing. And I think that's like naming it in the fairy tale. It's like seeing, oh, my God, this this is not true. This is a lie that I'm believing and and I'm creating the suffering in myself. Yeah, yeah. And, and to just if this is a dream, just to associate for a second, like we would for a dream, you know, um, just symbolically, who's the liar? It's the devil. And yeah. in the collective works, Jung talks about projecting the shadow is the lie. That's his term for the projection of the shadow. So, um, you know, and yeah, so what you're saying is totally true. It's to believe, you know, in, in the same way that to identify with the false ego, with who we're not, and, you know, that's to, that's to believe the lie, you know? And um, yeah, I, I just couldn't agree more about that. You know, there really is that sense of deeping, a deep lie. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to segue in was, uh, you know, reading through Awakened by Darkness. Man, that is, that's a really good book. <laughs> it what? really reminds me of like a horror, a great, great horror novel. And, um, but it's, that was my it's, life. That was, that was, I, know, like, the story I mean, really, it, I have to close it sometimes at night. It's like, it scares me. It scares me. <laughs> Not too much. No, but, I mean, um, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost killed me. Yeah, it's really intense. It's a great book, too, for everyone listening. Um, but one of the things that really popped out was you mentioned William S. Burroughs and how he had this traumatic experience where he, he basically he, he was drunk and he shot his wife. He was playing like William Tell and he shot yeah. his wife in the head. And that invoked this demon inside of him. And the only way he could he could resolve that is with writing. And I started thinking about all the other writers and artists who must have had some like Bukowski. His father was a total psycho and that guy just wrote so prolifically and he's one of my favorite authors of all time uh byron katie she was so depressed and she had that and now her whole life has just been creatively sharing this work and right. um and it sounds like the same thing happened to you and i'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how with tico yeah yeah how creativity ties into all this yeah 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 no totally and that i just really appreciate that question because you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm in private practice, I have all these groups, and there's not one person that I've ever, you know, had in my groups or in my practice that I haven't seen, oh, wow, the solution for them is to connect with their creative voice, with their creative spirit. And like, um, you know, one way of understanding that is like the thing about Watiko, it's not a personal energy, it's this transpersonal archetypal energy one can think of it, it's like a higher dimensional energy. And you could say it's like this daimonic energy. And and that word, daimon, the etymology of the word is really interesting because it has to do with the guiding spirit, with one's angel, with one's inner voice, with the genius, with one's vocation. The idea being that if you really connect with the daimon, with your, you know, just the inner voice, the guru, the muse, all of those are, are you know, synonyms for the daimon. Um, you'll find your vocation and you'll find your inner voice. That's another word of having to do with daimon. Um, but if you don't connect with the daimon, um, it become, it constellates negatively and becomes a demon. But encoded in the daimon is the creative spirit. So the point is, is that if we actually develop relationship with the creative spirit, 
that daimon, that creative energy heals us. But if we, if we turn away, if we tell ourselves a story, oh no, I'm not good enough, I can't do that. And if we, if we actually don't connect with that creative spirit that's within us, then that, that daimon becomes a demon and kill us, you know? And um, yeah, that's just really, really clear. And it doesn't make a difference what the medium is. Like for me, I was trained as, as a visual artist so I was, you know, painting and drawing and, you know, to, be, to actually write, that was my worst subject in college. But I now know, yeah, it was because I wasn't interested in what I was writing about. As soon as I began to write about, because I was having these intense experiences, these inner experiences, and as soon as I began to find my voice and to write, even that book about my abuse, the one you had just, you know, talked about, for years, I could only describe the abuse from my father, which was so horrific. And it was not physical abuse. It was in the realm of psyche. It was emotional abuse. So it didn't, it wasn't easy to language. So for years, all I could do was describe the abuse in a couple of sentences. But then once I found my voice, I mean, that book, it's a quarter of a million words. It's a 600 page book. It's a huge book. Once I found my voice, that was so profoundly healing for me to be able to like find the words for what I was in really experiencing. And so I can't say enough to, to really support people to, you know, because like even in the apocryphal text, Christ is talking about this. He's saying, if you bring forth what's within you and, and think about what's within you, it's that creative spirit that's thirsting to be given form. If you bring forth to, to what's within you, to that creative spirit, it will save you. If you don't bring forth what's within you, that creative voice, it will destroy you. That's Christ. He actually said that, and of course, that got written out of the Bible, you know, but it's in the apocryphal text. In your book with your dad, I, I can imagine uh, a lot of people maybe saying like, you know, you weren't getting hit, you were getting fed. You know, I, I can imagine people being right. like, well, you're, you're, you don't have it that bad, and, and what is this emotional abuse and, you know, kind of suck it up. But I mean, I can understand how, how traumatic it was. And what would you say to people like that? You just knock them off, or, or how, how do you? Yeah. How, how did you find that courage and that and that voice to describe something that's unseen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that, and I've run across that, and I know those figures who just say, "Oh, you weren't sexually abused, you weren't physically abused, you weren't hit. You know, it's just emotional. Just get over it. You know, get on with your life and all that." And, you know, I, I point out that when there is when there is psychic, psychological, emotional abuse, it can it can destroy a person and it can be actually harder to come to terms with when, when there's physical abuse, because physical abuse, you know, you have black and blue and it's really clear what happened where with emotional abuse, it's very invisible. It's vaporous. And then there is all the covering the tracks and gaslighting and making you seem like a crazy one. So it's it's a mindfuck. It's totally crazy making. And um, yeah, I would love to have a debate with anybody about that because, um, you know, um, yeah, I, I could write a book about that. Let's put it that way. You know what is, I is accusing somebody of gaslighting gaslighting. Like what is gaslighting? Yeah. And, you know, I mean. That's really interesting uh, is accusing somebody. Well, I mean, because there is something called gaslighting when when somebody, you know, I see this in, in my groups. There are people who will play something out in the group with like 12 other witnesses. And then we'll, you know, 10 minutes later, we'll point out what they did. And they're like, no, 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 I didn't do that. You know, yes. and it would be one thing if it was just me 
because then I might begin to doubt my experience. But when there's 12 other people, yeah. you know, and you have, well, and then of course they'll say, well, that's not what I meant. Maybe I said it, but I didn't mean it, you know, which is just, it's, it's crazy making. And so, you yeah, know, there, there's a phenomena called gaslighting, but you know, um, the idea being that, for example, when somebody's under the spell of Watiko, if you try to hold up a mirror to them and reflect back their state, that they're actually, you know, under the spell of some sort of darker force or just of their unconscious, they'll see you as the crazy one, you mm -hmm. know, because one of the chief features of Watiko is typically people afflicted with Watiko will accuse other people of doing what they themselves are unconsciously doing. And that's the crazy making aspect. Yeah, man. Um, you mentioned the word psychedelic not too long ago. And, uh, you know, there's just more and more research out right now. And, and it's like psych psychedelics are making this huge comeback with microdosing and, you know, psilocybin getting more and more legal and ayahuasca, everything like that. I, I'm wondering um, if you've had experience with that and how you see that tie in. I've heard a lot of people say that it can actually open doors for more demonic influences to come in. And then other people say it's incredibly healing. And, yeah. and what's your, you know... Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I mean, I think that, you know, plant medicines are incredible. They've helped me in my life. You know, I, um, you know, I can't say enough about that. And they're incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know who've done them and then it's opened up a door for demonic forces to come in and it's ruined their lives because they didn't have a strong enough ego to integrate or to relate to or to, to deal with darker forces. And so it's not something to play around with. It's not like a child's toy. It's, it's major. It's a very powerful medicine. But if you actually have a strong enough sense of self and if you're really if you've cultivated your own inner work and you do a plant medicine in the right set and setting um it, it can it can be profound it can, it can change your life you know but it's something to really it's a very sacred thing it's not something you just do you know like you know as a party thing or you know as a social thing like for example when i would do it i would you know for a long time for like a number of weeks i would be preparing and meditating and getting my intention clear and then, you know, the day of, I would just be like, you know, probably fasting and doing intense prayers and, you know, and the, the whole idea being that I would set up, you know, the whole container. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that I, I had this real, I developed this capability, you know, and I knew that every time I would do it, you know, that I would have to come to terms with darker forces. Now, the thing about the darker forces with Watiko, for example, um, and I'm not sure if I told you this when, when we spoke during our session, but, you know, when I got out of that last hospital in 82, you know, after my awakening and I was brutalized by psychiatry, it almost killed me. It totally destroyed my family. And then I found my teachers, these great, you know, these, these, you know, Tibetan, these lamas and other, other, you know, practitioners from, from Southeast Asia, um, and I would see them all the time, as often as I could. And I would always be telling them about the pain I was in and the darkness and the darker forces and the evil. And, you know, and all of that had come through my father. It was like I had gotten like the inheritance. I had gotten the transfusion because he had so, you know, whatever the abuse was so intense that my boundaries had gotten obliterated and whatever darker energy was in him 
came into me. So I would be describing, you know, my experience of these darker forces, which I was wrestling with 24 seven with my teachers. Mm -hmm. And one day they said something to me very interesting. They said, Paul, it's only because you have such potential for light that the darker forces are even interested. And as soon as they said that, that made total sense to me and it recontextualized the experience. So instead of seeing the darker forces at that from that moment on of like, oh, negative and an obscuration and how come this is happening to me? I saw, oh, no, they actually potentially can help me to wake up They're in the same way with the Buddha. Think about it. Before the Buddha became enlightened, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. What happened? All the darker forces came to like attack him. And I point out in my Watiko book that on one hand, they seem to be obscuring forces and adversarial and wanting to stop him from enlightenment, but they were secretly his allies, that he needed them. They were his own mind appearing in the form of the darkness. So he needed the challenge of the darker forces to, in a way, to build the muscle of realization. They were catalyzing him over Mm -hmm. his edge into enlightenment. And, you know, so I, I kind of point out that that can be really helpful when we see, you know, when we frame our experience in that way. When in, in, in your story, your dad just died and I and, and you kept sort of having contact with him all the way towards the end of his life. Right. And a lot of what I've read, they say that when dealing with sort of really dark people, it's best just to have no contact. I'm curious two things. One, why did you keep interacting with your father? Why didn't you just cut it and do your thing? Secondly, right. do you do you believe that your father could have changed or was he just so entrenched in this unconsciousness in the grip of Watiko that it was just like, that's just his role in this life? Right, right. Well, keep in mind his sister, he had one sibling, his sister, my aunt. And the one conversation I had with her, you know, where she was honest and told me the extent of how evil and dark he was. In that conversation, she counseled me, you should get away from your father and never speak to him again, ever, ever again, get as far away. And and I didn't listen. And, you know, I mean, part of it was, I think I was just, you know, attached. I mean, he was my father, my mother had died, this was my family. I don't think I fully had the realization of, um, you know, who I was dealing with. Um, Because, you know, I see now, yeah, he he was literally, the incarnation of Watiko in in this human form, sort of like Christ was the incarnation of, you know, our wholeness or our holiness in human form. He, you know, my father was sort of the antichrist in that way. He was the opposite of that. Um, but to answer your second question and to tie it back to the first, um, I was under the illusion that he was open for reflection and growth and he could change and all that. And that was my complicity, the fact that I was still trying to like engage with him in that way and maybe to change him or enlighten him or even just talk to him in a way where he could self-reflect and understand what he was doing and maybe he was projecting out his shadow. Yeah, I was right in what I was pointing at, but I I was suffering from this magical thinking, thinking that, oh, even though he hasn't been able to do any self-reflection for his whole life, I was still having the hope that, oh, maybe if I'm eloquent enough or articulate enough, he would really get it. That was my delusion. And that was my being in collusion with the very evil that I was seeing through him. So in that book, The Awakened by Darkness book, my memoir, I'm not just you know saying, oh, my father's so bad and I'm an innocent victim. 
no, I'm pointing out my own complicity in the abuse that I, you know, it took me years and years because it was so traumatic to, to realize that one of your parents is like a conduit for evil, you know, and I'm not saying my father was evil because that's to conflate the personal with the archetypal. No, my father was an, a human being who just was completely ignorant. Like when, when this ex-girlfriend of mine, when she met him, she said something interesting. She says, yeah, he is so unconscious and he's unconscious that he's unconscious, you know? And yeah, but by definition. And, and so, yeah, he was just this, this deluded, unconscious human being who unwittingly had become, at, and it was because he wasn't dealing with his own stuff, with his own darkness. So he was just so completely projecting out his own shadow and by doing that, he had unwittingly become an instrument for Watiko to come through him and to like inform the entire non-local field. Because I saw my parents, my friends, the relatives, the mental health community, the psychiatrist, everybody protected my father and aligned with him. And I became the identified patient. I became the one who was chemically imbalanced, mentally ill, who was in denial of his illness, who was abusive, who was evil, when that was my father. But yet he somehow was able to cast me in that role and have everybody else subscribe to his viewpoint. And, you know, but but I see now that was part of my initiation. That was part of my training. I would not have been able to bring my work on Watiko into the world without having gone through that. Yeah. And that's part of why I am so happy to have you on the show, because I feel like that's such an inspiration, like. To, to hear your story and, and getting hospitalized numerous times and having the entire medical community and your friends and family all convincing you or trying to convince you and being convinced themselves that you're absolutely batshit nuts and yeah, yeah, yeah. and you came out and you're okay. And it's like, oh, and not only okay, it's really bad, but it, it yeah. kind of works out, right? It's, yeah, yeah, but, but not only okay. I mean, so I've developed a whole body of work that's helping people all over the world. I've had, I have a community that's formed around me. I, I'm at, you know, I, I don't have to have like, you know, any sort of job other than this, then, you know, just talking about my work and I'm supported by it. And, um, yeah, but you know, the tra the tragic aspect of it, you know, my parents both died completely convinced that, you know, I'm mentally ill and in, in denial of my illness. And, um, you know, it was like, and, it, you know, just to give you an example of the extremity of it, psychiatry they would have um, they would have seen it as a successful treatment if I would have subscribed to their version of who I was. And their version of who I was was that I'm mentally ill, I'm going to have to be on medication for the rest of my life. If I would have agreed to that, to them, that would have been a successful treatment. You know, and to me, that would have completely destroyed my soul. Yeah. And, you know, but the thing that got me through it couldn't have been more obvious from inside my own mind that I was having an awakening. So they're diagnosing me as chemically imbalanced and mentally ill. And I'm, I'm diagnosing them as being complete idiots. Yeah. You know? Totally asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the, the movie references are just popping up all over the place. I mean, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and totally all, all these movies. And then, um, silence of the lambs, you know, when, when she goes in and, and the FBI director tells her, don't let Hannibal inside of your head. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, that's the nature of the Watiko. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter, my aunt, my father's sister, during that one conversation when she actually became honest and she told me, she says, your father did something so horrible and so terrible before you were born, but I will never ever tell you what it was because it was so horrible and so terrible. And then she says, do you know who Hannibal Lecter is? 
And, th- and you know, this is like, you know, my aunt. And I go, of, of course, Aunt Helen, I know Hannibal Lecter. She goes, Paul, that's the sort of person your father is. Oh, man. Yeah, 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 you know. And, and but by the end of that conversation, so I was like ecstatic. I was writing down and taking notes because this was the one time I had any validation from a family member. Uh-huh. But by the end of that conversation, like like a rubber band that had snapped back, how she ended the conversation was was as follows. She says, Paul, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you refuse to take your lithium. That's your problem. So she snapped back into the trance. Into, it was way easier for her to see me as, oh, you know, I'm the mentally ill one. If I would just take my medication, I would stop saying these horrible things about my father. And it was like a mindfuck because she had just spent like, you know, a half an hour just on and on telling me how horrible my father was, her brother, you know. It's almost like she, she got into that sort of reality groove and then it, it, she knew how uncomfortable and familiar it was and she just had to snap back into what was familiar yeah. being in the trance, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so for anyone who's listening to this, who seem, I think that, it, like, it, like you referenced earlier, as you get more awake, as your awareness grows, you become more aware of these forces operating. So for those out there who are experiencing some Watiko phenomenon in their life, how can you help direct them towards uh, what to do? I mean, we talked about creativity, but um, yeah. any any other directions that you could you could for sure for sure like, and, and that's great. And um, you know, I mean, when you say for those of us who are experiencing Watiko, well, what about everyone? Because I mean, just take a look at the world we live in. Because yeah. Watiko is a collective psychosis. But people blind, you know, they they turn off to it. They just rather yeah. watch. And, and that's how Watiko feeds. It feeds off of our turning a blind eye. That's that feeds off of our unawareness. It can't stand when we bring awareness to it, you know? And so the thing is, the thing about Watiko, it's a collective psychosis. And in case people haven't recognized, we're in the middle of a psychic epidemic of a collective psychosis of titanic proportions. And so one thing I would counsel, and you know, be it whether you're experiencing Watiko in like someone close to you, or your partner at work, you know, or your community or in the world at large through the greater body politic. If you if you remember what I was saying, what Tico, one of the ways it hides itself is by we then place our attention outside of ourselves. So say if somebody, for example, is at a certain moment, you see, if we if we think, oh, they have what you know, whoever they is, mm-hmm. that's and then and if, if we think they have it and we don't, well, guess what? That perspective is an expression that we ourselves are under the the thrall of Watiko because Watiko feeds off of polarization, you know. But when we, if somebody's embodying for a moment Watiko, and if we then have the awareness, oh wow, they're like embodying Watiko right now, but they're a dream character. They're just an embodied reflection of that same dark, that evil, that Watiko energy in me, and then. So if we see the the Watiko out there, the evil out there, Watiko is non-local. We can't possibly see it without having our unconscious activated. And what I'm pointing at is that instead of putting our attention outside of ourselves, at that moment, we're given an opportunity. Something in us is triggered by the Watiko manifesting outside of ourselves. Turn our awareness back inside ourselves. It's an incredible opportunity to bring awareness to an unconscious, darker content inside of us. And then when we actually were able to metabolize that and bring awareness to that and assimilate that, then to that extent, we, we've assimilated and owned and integrated some darker aspect of ourselves. 
And to the extent that we're actually embodying that integration, then we can be an agent that can actually engage with Watiko in a conscious way that instead of unwittingly feeding it, that can actually help to dispel it. it that, that makes me think of the, uh, the Buddhist Tonglen practice um, yeah. where, where you, you breathe in the, the darkness from an enemy or somebody and you breathe it into your heart center where it's, where it's light, right? And then you breathe back the light and blessings to that person. Right. And, and that's, that's, yeah, that's like the total antidote of Watiko. It's like yeah. totally owning it and giving back love and, and land. I'm so glad you said that because you know when I because I, I do a lot of a lot of practice, a lot of Buddhist practice every day. I mean that's my major formal practice. And I always started by Tonglen. Just wow. one of the things about Tonglen, you know, the, the aspect that really speaks to me. So, you know, I've been 24-7 for close to 40 years. You know, I'm still suffering from PTSD when you have such a direct encounter not with just personal evil but with archetypal evil through your parent and it's wanting to destroy you because my father he got dreamed up of wanting to destroy my create you know the creativity in me he mm -hmm. saw this, that as a threat but of course that just made me even more committed to like bring forth my creativity um but the point is is that yeah i'm still assimilating and dealing with the incredible pain of having a father who is, you know, such an incredible incarnation, you know, or such an instrument, because I don't want to personalize it, of, of, of archetypal evil to come through, that's unbelievably shattering, you know, and traumatizing. And, you know, very thankfully, I've integrated enough that I'm like able to, you know, help and be a benefit for people because of what I've been through. But the point is, every time I start my practice, I'm in, I, you know, the part of me that's, that's suffering from that pain, well, I'm feeling that pain anyways, but instead of like, oh, I wish I wouldn't feel this pain, what if I just change the story and go, oh, I'm feeling this pain anyway, would I be willing to feel this pain that I'm feeling anyway if no one else then would have to feel it? Would I be willing to do that? And oh, the, the bodhisattva part of me says, absolutely, I would be voluntarily willing to feel this pain, and I'm feeling it anyway, but if I'm not doing Tonglen, I'm contracting against it and resisting it and cursing mm -hmm. myself. But all of a sudden, I'm feeling it anyway. Let me just reframe the story and let me just voluntarily take it on, which a part of me would, so that no one else has to feel it. That's how that's, you know, the Tonglen practice for me. And then what, what have I done? I've embraced my experience. I'm welcoming my experience instead of fighting against it. And by doing that, I'm creating the space for the pain to not not last so long, to not be as problematic, to not be so solid. Wow. So it's almost like you stop doing, it's like Tonglen is not, the point of it is not to get relief from your suffering. It's to more embody and accept and embrace that suffering. But in doing that, it seems to me like that resolves the suffering. Yeah, it's very, it's very paradoxical, you know, because to make a distinction between there's two types of suffering, there is the neurotic suffering, unproductive. And that's just from the Buddhist point of view, you know, coming from our clinging and grasping. Mm -hmm. That's unnecessary suffering that has no benefit. Then there is, you know, I think about like with with like in Christianity, they have like the mystical Christianity where they'll talk about then there's another type of suffering that comes from God and that suffering that purifies us. Mm -hmm. And when that comes to just welcome that, you know, and, and that's what we have, you know, this one word, oh, suffering. But there's, it's really important to make that distinction between the unproductive neurotic suffering 
and the real. And this is why the famous quote Young says, um, we become sort of, you know, in a, in a neurotic state because we refuse to legitimately suffer. That's what he's talking about. When the suffering is coming from God, instead of just accepting it and having it purify us, we're fighting it. That's the unproductive suffering, and that's the refusal, the refusal to legitimately suffer that Young is referencing. And that brings a whole other light, too, on the, the Native American traditions and the, the sun dance where they, they pierce their, you know, their, their chests and hang there for I don't know how many days to take on the suffering for other beings. And the sweat lodges and all the different ceremonies they do where they just willingly go through the pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. I, think, I want to point out this, this connects with the archetype of the healer who's wounded, the wounded healer, which is equivalent to the shaman. Because what I've, what I've learned from experience, and I continually just, my understanding just always is, is deepening, is that because of the incredible trauma and, and, and like the, the wounding that I went through, you know, that I write about, I mean, if you get through the Awakened by Darkness book, you know, it's over the top what I had to go through. Um, and so many of us have to, you know, just being alive, it, it's, you know, obviously it's an incredible challenge. Um, you know, particularly in this day and age, but like what I've learned is because, okay, so I had this wounding that could have made me incredible, incredibly like disassociated and made me sort of neurotic or psychotic or suicidal or whatever. But somehow I chose, you know, cause from my point of view, I didn't really have a choice to just, you know, come to terms with the suffering, to go through the suffering instead of instead of going around it and avoiding it. Mm -hmm. I actually, you know, went through it and I'm still going through it. And by doing that, when I meet other people who are really deeply in their wound and trauma, you know, very traumatized or suffering, I'm incredibly comfortable in just meeting them where they're at because mm -hmm. I am so familiar with that place in myself. And, and, and just that, when you meet somebody else who's not, judging you or diagnosing you or contracting against your experience or trying to talk you out of your experience or trying to fix you, but you just are with somebody who can really hear you and see you and just meet you where you're at, that itself, that's over 50% of the healing right there. That's exactly what uh, what was so valuable about our session. You were somebody, one of the few people who really could just understand and hear me and there was no judgment and no like oh you're tripping Christopher anything like that and just that alone you're right it's just even more than anything you said which was profound it was just that recognition switched something for me wow exactly yes. yeah that's, I have one more question where yeah, yeah go ahead yeah because oh. that's what happened to me when I was going through the intense suffering not only from the abuse from my father but then like having just gotten out of the hospitals and being diagnosed and you know the suffering from that and I would go to my lamas, these Tibetan lamas, and I would be, you know, all I would talk about was the intense suffering I was in and how like, you know, like fucked up I was and the demons. And, and after, you know, this is what I was doing every time for hours and hours and hours, I would see them as often as I could. And at a certain point, I, I realized they're not taking me seriously. I mean, they were honoring what I was saying and they were really, you know, they were listening to it and honoring it, but they weren't getting hooked by it. They weren't buying into it they weren't seeing me as like this, you know, this this person who was wounded. No, they were in relationship to the part of me that was whole and healed and awake. And by them seeing me in my Buddha nature, and they could only see me that way because they were in touch with their Buddha nature, it was like they were creating a bridge for oh. me to actually step into it. 
And so yeah. I've learned that's what I kind of just naturally do with other people. That's so beautiful. And that's what they say. That's what they say, how um, Jesus healed. He was able to see the person as whole and complete. And then that somehow like transferred or, or inspired a recognition within them for the healing to take place. Right. Because if you think about it from the dream, who is Jesus? If he's seeing or my llamas or whoever, we can all play this role for each other. If, if, if you have somebody seeing your wholeness and they're just, that's the, the, the Christoph that they're relating to. Well, think about it from the dream. You've dreamed up the part of you that's seeing your wholeness and you're seeing it out there from outside of yourself. Because when we're unconscious of something, we always have to project it out and we dream it up outside. That's how we become conscious of mm -hmm. it. We first, because when we're unconscious, we're, identif we're unconsciously identified with it. We can't see it, like an eye can't see itself. So we project it out, it gets dreamed up, and then it, it's reflecting back to us. So that figure who's seeing your wholeness, that's the part of you that's seeing your wholeness. And if you could actually like step into that point of view, it's gonna awaken the part of you that all of a sudden is gonna more and more, you know, step into and embody your own wholeness. Amen, yeah, that's powerful stuff. Uh, we're, we're at an hour right now, I have one more question, if you don't mind, we going over a little bit? A little longer, that's fine, yeah. Okay, cool, so in, in, in a lot of the new age circles now, I'm hearing a lot about like psychic protection and putting up your golden egg and then cutting the cords between another person and, and it's like, it's almost just like, that's just a, distorted way of dealing with it. I feel like that's just feeding um, the whole Watiko by pointing the finger out. That person's bad, so I need to protect myself with this light because I'm so great and spiritual, and then that person won't have an effect on me anymore. Uh, what are your, have you heard that? I mean, it's it's all over. What do you? Right, no, no, totally. Well, I mean, what it brings up in my mind is like, the, there's like the absolute dimension of reality and then the relative level of reality. And you have to honor both. So on the one hand, yeah, if I'm like fully enlightened, you know, and who is, um, then, you know, my true nature itself is is invulnerable and, you know, it's not going to get hooked by any negative energy or, you know, anything like that. So on the one hand, the, the best protection against Watiko is to be in touch with your nature, is to be in touch because that's the part of us that's not that's not possessable, that's invulnerable, that's always pure, that's transcendent to any of the poisons or the evil and all that. But if you're not in, you know, and of course, so that's the, the really, you know, that's the bottom line, you know, that's the greatest protection to Watiko. Um, but, you know, if you're not in touch with that, yeah, you know, on the one hand, these, these relative, you know, oh, let me visualize, uh, you know, all of that's fine and dandy, but there's a problem intrinsic to it. And this might be what you're pointing at. Because you see, if you think, here's the, here's the, 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 cra the seeming crazy making paradoxical aspect of Watiko. If you think, oh, that person has Watiko and I need to protect myself against mm -hmm. Watiko, well, guess what? By holding that viewpoint, you've invested the Watiko that you're seeing in them as being real. And then you've made it real by seeing it that way. But oh. here's, another, here's another part. If, you, if, if somebody is like, you know, taken over by Watiko, and if you just say, oh, well, there's no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as Watiko, it's like if there's a, a cholera epidemic and you just say, oh, cholera, there's no such thing, well, you're going to die. You know, on one level, you see, so on one level, it has, the thing about Watiko, Watiko doesn't even exist. It has no intrinsic independent reality whatsoever. And yet the paradox is it can destroy our species. That's the paradox. You know, it both exists and doesn't exist. And you can't just just marginalize one. People who hear the absolute teachings 
where, oh, there's no such, it's all a dream, we're all one, you know, and, and, and if they just identify with the absolute level, they'll get destroyed by Watiko. But if people just, you know, they hear the relative level of reality, oh, I have to protect myself and it's real and, uh, you know, and all that, well, they're going to be, by them just having that point of view, they're unwittingly feeding the very evil they're fighting against. Mm. The idea is, is that both the absolute and the relative dimensions of reality interpenetrate. They're not separate. You have to honor both, okay? And um, because if I could just say a few more words about Watiko, because it's yeah. such a profound idea, and I just want to get across. So in the apocryphal text, I mean, every spiritual tradition talks about Watiko in, in their different symbol system. And in the apocryphal text, they have this entity that they call, and of course it got written out of the Bible, it's called the counterfeiting spirit. That's mm -hmm. Watiko. Watiko apes us, it mimics us, it impersonates us, it puts us on. And that has a double meaning, putting us on like a suit of clothes, but putting us on means to fool ourselves. So it will, it will mime us, impersonate us with a false version of who we are. And if we're not awake in that moment, we then will identify with, with the false version of who we are, thinking that that's who we are. And then, you know, an example being, say, for example, if you get like this, this tapeworm in your body, at a certain point, the tapeworm will secrete chemicals such that you'll crave certain food that feeds the tapeworm. So then you'll crave, you'll eat certain food, the tapeworm grows bigger until it kills you. But it doesn't want to kill you too soon because then it'll suffer the inconvenience of having to find another host, okay? Mm -hmm. Now that tapeworm is like Watiko. We then think we're acting on our own impulses where we're unwittingly identifying with and acting out the false version of who we are, you know, that Watiko has like actually put us on and, you know, and, and we've identified with it. And, um, you know, and we become a duplicate of ourselves. We become a fake copy. We be, it's like a counterfeit. And that's, and that's the ego of A Course in Miracles. And, and so by doing that, that's how Watiko works, but it doesn't want us to see through its illusion because it's, and all the, every wisdom tradition, I mean, the Hawaiian kahuna, they talk about it. Islam talks about it. Mystical Christianity talks about it. Buddhism talks about it. Every, every wisdom tradition that's worthy of the name being called the wisdom tradition, why it's called the wisdom tradition is because it's pointing at Watiko. If it's not pointing at Watiko in its own unique way, then it's not a wisdom tradition. That's what wisdom is, you know? And so this, this like virus, it's like a virus of the mind. It's a cancer of the soul. And it operates through the realm of psyche. And that's why it's invisible. We don't see it. You know, it operates through the blindness, blind spots. It operates through our projective tendencies of the mind. And, and it, it operates through our unawareness. And that's why I'm so passionate about pointing at it and like saying, look, you know, if you look at it, because here's the three ways of, of dispelling what you go. One is to see, to see the dreamlike nature of reality. Okay. And, um, the second is to see through that illusion, like we were talking before, of the separate self. Because when you see through, when you see the dreamlike nature of reality, you discover we're all dream characters. We're embodied reflections of each other. We're actually ultimately not separate. We're interconnected and interdependent, like I was saying before. And the third way is to see the non-local field in which we're contained and of which we're all expressions of. And those three things, the dreamlike nature, seeing through the separate self and the non-local field, they're not separate. They're like three aspects of the jewel 
that dispels what you go. And the energetic expression of that realization is compassion. To the extent that we really can cultivate genuine compassion, not idiot compassion, which is just smiley face and patting each other on the back, because sometimes compassion can be fierce and set a boundary. To the extent that we really can like deepen or and establish ourselves, in, and even His Holiness Dalai Lama, he's saying every day, I'm extending and I'm enlarging my altruism, my compassion. It's not something you ever get to the end of. <laughs> that's the really, that's the antidote for what's ego. Wow, okay, so real quick, how are we saying that it's unreal, that it's, it's, it's fake? Is that because it's, it's only real in the imagination? It's only re reality is what we're giving it? Well, well, the creative imagination, like, you know, according to every wisdom tradition, like, you know, I mean, I can name so many thinkers too who talk about that creative imagination is the primordial reality, that every moment we are, if I can just go back to, to quantum physics, because quantum physics is actually, quantum physics is the medicine for Watiko, like I was saying before, because quantum physics is pointing out because there's no objective world and because moment by moment as we observe the world, we're actually affecting and influencing the universe that's observed, that's pointing at the incredible creativity that's intrinsic to our nature that we, we are literally creating our experience of ourselves and we're literally creating our experience of the world moment by moment and the source of that is our creative imagination. Is how are we interpreting our experience? What is the the meaning we're placing on our, on our experience, the source of that is the psyche, is the creative imagination. So what I'm saying is that, you see, it's very paradoxical that if we think that Watiko is real in the same way that if we think the devil is really real and all that, well, then guess what? That point of view is to have fallen under the spell of the devil. Then we're investing it with a, with a reality that it's not warranted. But if we think, oh, no, it's nothing and, you know, and we're all fine and dandy, then we'll get killed by it. That's the paradox. Cool. So the point is, to, in, in going back to Buddhism, seeing the emptiness of it, that Watiko, it has no intrinsic, independent, objective existence from its own side, separate from our own mind. Yeah. That yeah. we ourselves have this power beyond measure. We are these incredibly creative, you know, we're the, these geniuses. Um, but our, our genius for how we create our experience, what Tico has subverted and turned it against ourselves in a way that's writ, being writ large in the greater body politic, that we're destroying the biosphere. We're destroying the life support system of our planet. We're collectively enacting a mass suicide ritual. And, and But then the question is, how come we're doing that? And I point that in my book, well, we're, we're destroying ourselves as the way, as the vehicle to learn how not to destroy ourselves which we clearly haven't learned or we wouldn't be destroying ourselves. So you see, that's what I mean, that encoded in Watiko, it's actually a profound blessing. It's showing us, it's like getting us in touch with our intrinsic creative power or it's going to destroy us. And it's all a question if enough of us have the recognition. And then when we, when we recognize what's being revealed and we connect with our incredible intrinsic creative power and we connect with other people who are also awakening, we can change the dream. We can change the waking dream, and that's what it's all about. That's that's we then are participating in our own evolution. That's what my work is about: is trying to like switch people onto that. There's no one external who's going to do that for us. We ourselves are the instruments, are the agents who who are being potentially enlisted into actually 
into actually waking up and evolving. And and that's not new age woo-woo. I no. mean, you know, that's that's what this is all about. Yeah, it's the, ima the imaginal cells in the cocoon that are starting to trigger all the other cells to wake up. You're a butterfly. Let's, let's stop this sluggishness. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Amazing, Paul, man. That was like, that was like a grand finale right there. I really appreciate your work and, and, and taking the time to share. And oh. I, I, I got it, man. It's like, you, it's like the opposite side of the transfusion of the Watiko. I got the transfusion. I'm just like, really being stoked to share this. I see the power and I just, I hope this podcast really helps a lot of people. Real quick, uh, just let everybody know how to get a hold of you and, and your website and everything like that. Sure, okay. Um, well, the website, um, awakeninthedream.com. Mm -hmm. The website, there's a ton of articles, all for free and a lot of interviews like this. Hopefully I'll be posting this when you send it to me. Um, and then if you wanna get my books, they're on the website and um, yeah. Awesome. And yes. private sessions are, are really worthwhile too, if, if you feel called. Just my little, my little plug there for you. Thank you <laughs> so much. Really. Yeah, yeah. Th really, thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure. Really appreciate yeah. the invite. I'm so glad to, to know you. Take cool. care. I'm here. Okay, take care. Okay, bye bye. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Levy bringing the truth our way, dispelling the Wetiko virus, non-local, quantum, manipulative, non-existent, but also sort of very real virus of the psyche, which has the ability to destroy human race or completely enlighten us. I thought that was incredible. I hope that you enjoyed that and are excited as that as that um, with that as I am. I just actually recorded a whole like 10 minute outro I was so pleased with. And then it just kind of like poof went away into the realm of nothingness that I cannot get back. So I, I I'm a little, you know, whatever bummed out about that, but um, I did want to just recap a few of the points that, that Paul talked about today. And, and the first one being um, how this discussion and how this dialogue sort of plays into the overarching conspiracy theory that has just gained so much momentum over the years. I remember discovering uh, David Icke back in the 90s and, and really just really taking to his work, actually, just thinking, you know, this is super far out shit. I mean, like reptilians from other dimensions and all this kind of thing. However, you know, there's there's kind of a stroke of truth in that. There's definitely uh, a non-physical um, energy that that works through the world, and I think it really does um, manifest through people who who allow that kind of thing to happen. And in the conspiracy community, I think what has really turned me off over the years is to see how much finger pointing there is. And as we know, if we're pointing a finger at somebody, we're pointing three back at ourselves. So the problem is not out there. And that is the uh, the greatest trick, Paul said, that the Watiko uses is once we start blaming the outside world, uh, uh, some person or situation or institution, once we start blaming them for uh, our pain and the problems in the world, and, um, and then that is actually the Wetiko at work. So the Wetiko, it, it feeds off polarization, Paul said. I thought it was really interesting. So when we're, when we're pointing at somebody who's 
evil, so to speak, that actually is the evil manifesting through us because that's the delusion, that's the confusion, and that's where it, it, it will continue to perpetuate itself because we're not owning it, we're not healing it within ourselves, which is the true cause, the true place, the true source of, uh, of, of this darkness and, and pain. Um, so, you know, I, I just would love for the conspiracy world to hear this, this discussion, get in this work. I think it really is, um, takes a level of maturity to really own that. And I, I, myself, I'm working on that every single day to, um, really watch the, the cyclic stories, cyclical stories that are playing out in my mind, the, the nightmarish dreams that are playing of how wrong things are and how somebody's bad and somebody's so fucked up that they would do this to me and blah, blah. And it's, it's like a victim story. And once we can recognize that it's not outside of ourselves and we have the power to bring compassion and healing to ourselves and do what we need to do to heal instead of blaming somebody else for totally ruining our lives, which is totally disempowering and only feeds more negativity and suffering. Speaking of the word feed, I have really also found it helpful to think of this in the context of some sort of an, an, uh, an entity um, who is getting strength with, with the suffering uh, of, of humanity. You know, it's like that, that Native American story where the, where the grandson asks his grandfather, um, you know, about the two wolves. One is the wolf of fear and one is the wolf of, of strength, courage, and love. And he says, which, which, which wolf is going to win here, grandfather? And, you know, the grandfather says, well, whatever one you feed the most. So it's literally when we're feeling like this despair and rage and fear, and we're letting these external, seemingly external circumstances um, affect us like that, we need to realize that we're the ones who are choosing that experience. We are literally giving the power to that dreamed up character to, to, to um, cause us to have pain. And it's not causing us to have pain. We are causing pain. We are choosing to create these negative reactions. And it can be really hard to change that and to really get that because it seems so real. The Watiko, uh, the ego Watiko is so convincing. This, this dreamed up reality is so convincing that it can be really, really challenging to really get that. But um, luckily for us, we have some really great examples. I know Byron Katie has been a great example to me. Now we got Paul, um, Buddha, Jesus, you know, not to mention so many countless other uh, teachers and examples in the world who have risen above, um, you know, suffering in their lives and really claimed sovereignty and and power um, over their own choices and their minds and experience of life. So I thought that was great. Um, so yes, all you conspiracy therapists, uh, conspiracy theorists, I think you guys are super cool. And I also think it's time that we go ahead and own it for ourselves and begin to see where the actual darkness resides. It's not out there. It's not some terrible evil universe or evil cabal trying to destroy us. It, it, it's coming from, it's coming from, uh, the mind it's coming from the, the inner psyche. So there you have it. That's my little soapbox, little sermon outro for the afternoon. Um, I usually was gonna, I usually wait or was thinking about waiting till, Thursdays to post the podcast, but this is just like too exciting for me to hold on to. So I'm going to go ahead and publish it today. 
Monday, the 15th of July. Man, every time I look at my watch, I'm thinking that marathon is coming right up. Luckily, I feel pretty trained for that. Um, luckily I feel pretty caffeinated today, so I'm going to go ahead and publish this. I hope you enjoy it. Oh yeah. One more thing. If you've listened this far, ladies and gentlemen, would you mind pushing the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice and going ahead and doing that will help create a momentum for more people to enjoy these kinds of interviews and this kind of message. If you found it helpful, then this was could be a way for you to sort of help pass it on a little bit. I really appreciate you listening. I welcome any comments, questions, um, show recommendations, anything like that. I really am um, in the business of creating a community to uh, share information that will help us understand and get along together and live happy free lives because I think that's really important. There is a big like Paul said the the infection of the Watiko virus at this time on the planet is is titanic. I mean it's every I mean Jesus everywhere you look um it seems that this Watiko virus is operating through people and um it's enough to can make you want to go a little bit crazy sometimes, but that does not need to occur when you have compassion, when you have uh, practices like Tong Lin and meditation, and when you have good community, um, which is what I'm trying to offer here in Miracle Soup. So until next time, really appreciate y'all listening. Really curious to see how you think this episode went, how it affected you, how it touched you, how it might have transformed you. And I look forward to our next show. All the best, Miracle Supers. That's it for now. Aloha.